Now, I love the book of Exodus and the story of Moses and how God used him to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. And I'm sure those of you who have children or who have seen the film The Prince of Peace, you see what a wonderful picture it paints of God's deliverance. There's so much we can learn from Exodus, the Exodus story about trusting God on, about, or what happens when we don't trust him, um, about God's daily provision, food and water, about God's direction for our lives and the pillars of cloud and fire and the Ten Commandments and his deliverance from enemies by crossing the Red Sea. I'm assuming that you're all familiar with the story. But tonight's talk is about what we can learn from God, about God, from the way Moses encountered him in the tent of meeting. Pick up the story quite late on. In Exodus 19, we're told in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. Moses left them and ascended Mount Sinai, where he received the Ten Commandments. God also gave laws about a huge range of things, including idols and altars, servants, injuries, property, social responsibility, justice and mercy, the Sabbath and other festivals. There's a real sense of glory, of majesty, of the power of God, a sense of holiness, a sense of something special, and a sense of God's wisdom. Now, if you read these accounts, you'll see that the Israelites were really afraid of God. They saw thunder and lightning on the mountain where Moses was meeting with God. They thought they would die if God spoke to them and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses had been told the people needed to be consecrated before encountering God, to wash their clothes and not even to touch the mountain where God was, on pain of death. God was insistent that Moses remind the people to put limits around the mountain because it was so holy that they would die if they touched it. When Moses went up on the mountain, a cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day, the Lord called Moses from the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And then Moses entered the cloud as he went on the mountain. I don't know about you, but for me, there are lots of echoes of other biblical events. Six days of creation, Sabbath on the seventh, a time to focus on God. And that's when Moses entered the cloud on the seventh day. And he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Same amount of time it rained on Noah, the time it took Elijah to walk through the desert to encounter God at Mount Horeb, and the same time Jesus spent fasting in the desert. More about that a bit later. However, during this time on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses very specific details for building the tabernacle, which would be the place of worship for the Israelites. He told Moses about priestly garments, the consecration of the priests, the altars, and so on. He spoke about atonement money, anointing oil, incense. He chose and anointed specific people to do the creative work of making the tabernacle. And he reminded Moses, again, of the importance of the Sabbath. God was giving the Israelites the tools and techniques with which to worship him in a way that would honour his glory and would be worthy of his status as I am. The tabernacle was to be a worthy place for God's presence to dwell, a place to reflect his majesty and glory. It was to be a holy place with everything done in the correct manner so that it would remain consecrated and holy. And Moses was given two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God to share with the people. 
It must have been quite awe-inspiring to be given something so precious by God. And you can imagine his disgust and his dismay when he came down from the mountain in Exodus 32, which is just before our passage, and discovered that the people were bowing down to a golden calf. How could they do that? God saw what had happened, and his anger burned against his people. He tells Moses he won't go with the people to the promised land, because if I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you on the way. Now, this story seems nothing like the one shown in the Prince of Egypt film. It shows a passionate God, a jealous God, a fearsome God, a terrifying God who manifests in thunder and lightning, one who would abandon his people because he might destroy them. And then we come to the tent of meeting in Exodus 33, a place where Moses meets with God, where, Moses would, where the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So this isn't on the mountain. There's no thunder, no lightning. This is a tent pitched outside the camp. There are some puzzling questions for me here. Firstly, God has been very specific about the tabernacle and how the priests are to be consecrated, underlining how holy is and how the worship is meant to happen. And yet here he is meeting Moses in a tent outside the camp. I'll come back to that again a bit later on. Secondly, God is meeting Moses as if he were meeting a friend. Up to this point, Moses' encounters with God have not been as two friends meeting. From the first encounter with God at the burning bush, when God introduced himself, to the powerful encounters with God on the mountain, where God's power and holiness keep the people in fear and trembling. And yet here, Moses walks out of the camp to a tent to meet with God as a friend. Where's the power? Where's the glory? Where's the holiness? I'm a bit confused. And I spent ages trying to figure out how to explain what happened between Moses and God in the tent of meeting. We're told in Exodus 33 verse 7 that anyone was welcome to go to the tent to inquire of the Lord. But it was only when Moses went that the pillar of cloud descended and God spoke to Moses face to face. And I realise I have no real frame of reference for understanding what happened and how it happened. I know I can talk to God through prayer and the longer I'm a Christian, the better I begin to know how to hear from him. But God's speaking to people face to face. Does that really happen? And even more puzzling, from verse 11 we read, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And yet in verse 20, God says, you cannot see my face for no one will see me and live. So let's just have a closer look. In verse 11, it doesn't say that Moses saw God face to face. What does it say? It says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. God is the subject, not Moses. God is speaking, not Moses is seeing. God is speaking face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This implies a personal relationship that God would speak to Moses as a friend speaks to a friend. There's something familiar, something informal, something relaxed about the way God spoke to Moses. This is quite different to seeing the glory of God's face, which is enough to kill a person. So the scripture is describing a relationship between God and Moses. And this is the thing that I'd like you to hold on to. So what about God actually speaking to Moses? Let's get back to my own frame of reference. Now, God has spoken to me. He said to me, 
go to church. And it was as if I heard his voice, but I heard it with my heart. I don't know if any else, anyone else here can relate to that, hearing God's words audibly, but in your heart. Go to church, God said. That was ten years ago, and here I am now. This was an intensely personal experience, and if I'm really frank, I wouldn't tell everyone that I believe God spoke to me. People tend to think that if you hear voices, then you're mentally unwell or unbalanced. We hear of cases where a criminal's defence is that they heard voices telling them to do something, usually pretty heinous. So what's the difference between people who are mentally ill and hear voices to Christians who claim to hear the voice of God? Firstly, Christians who claim to have heard the voice of God generally have some sense of calling to do something, to go somewhere, to serve in a positive manner, not to undertake a crime. Moses was called to lead the people out of Egypt. Paul was called to become a disciple. I was called to go to church, something that really didn't appeal to me at the time, I have to say. This is in contrast with people who have serious mental illnesses, who often have long periods of clinical illness and who are in need of constant care and not in a position to serve others. There's also something important about what God actually says to us that needs to stand up when shared with other Christians or with the scriptures. Was it reasonable for God to say to me, go to church? Although at the time I thought it was completely unreasonable, I now think most Christians would agree that it was entirely reasonable for God to say to me, go to church. And actually the Bible would back this up. And in fact, when I look back, I realised that the passages I'd been reading in the Bible at the time in Matthew chapter 5, all about Jesus being the light of the world and how a light is put on a stand to shine for others, were all leading me to think that if this was something that I really believed, I should stand up for it and I should let my light join other Christians and, and, and shine their lights together. For me, this was my burning bush moment, although not nearly as dramatic. Now, at the burning bush, Moses was afraid and hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So in Exodus 3, we have Moses afraid to look at God. What a change 30 chapters later when God meets with Moses as a friend. And there's a clue there. There's a big difference from Moses being afraid of God to meeting with with him as a friend. And just think about what Moses has been through. He's had that encounter at the burning bush with God when he was middle-aged. He'd seen God's mighty power on display in Egypt. He'd learned to trust God to part the Red Sea when there seemed to be no escape. He'd seen God lead the way with the pillar of cloud and fire. He'd seen God provide manna, quail and water. Moses had spent significant time with God on Mount Sinai for more than 40 days and nights. And he did that twice, once for each set of stone tablets. I mentioned before the significance of 40 days and nights. 40 years were generally held to represent a generation. Hence the 40 years the Israelites spent in the desert. And in some way, 40 serves as a kind of theme or a sign of true service and dedication to God. The fact that Noah, Moses, Elijah and Jesus all spent 40 days and nights waiting on God serves to link them together as true servants of God. So the point is, Moses had already spent considerable time time with God before they started meeting regularly in the tent of meeting. Their friendship had been forged through time spent together. How many of us would view our daily time with God as friendship time? How many of us would go out of our way to ensure we don't miss this time with God? If we want an intimate relationship with God, we need to spend time with him. 
And isn't this what we're taught in the New Testament, to spend time with God, to pray without ceasing, not just as a spiritual discipline, but as a way to encourage us to develop intimacy with God. We're taught this in the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy 6, 5-9 Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God knew that the Israelites needed to be immersed in the things of God in order to develop a relationship with him. And God also knew that it would take time. Moses was the person who was prepared to take the time to become intimate with God. Let's have a look at the conversation that they had. First thing to note is that it was a dialogue and not a monologue. Moses reminds us that he had asked Moses, Moses reminds God that he had asked Moses to lead these people. He reminds God that he said, I know you by name and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. I know you by name, God says. What a curious statement. God knows Moses by name. But don't we all? Somewhere I'm missing the point. God knows Moses by name. This implies intimacy rather than knowledge. It implies God learning about Moses, about Moses allowing God into his private life, allowing God to search him out. Psalm 139 verse 13 tells us, For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So surely God knows all about Moses. So here's a mystery, and I think it points to the love of God. God loves us enough not to know us. He made us, but he gave us the freedom to share ourselves with him or not to share ourselves with him. Moses chose to share with God, and he wants God to share back. He said, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Moses really wanted to know more of God. He wanted to understand him more. Most of us here will know who the Queen is and maybe know quite a bit about her life. We might know she likes horses and corgis. She has an extensive wardrobe, several houses, lots of grandchildren. We might occasionally listen to her speeches, but how many of us here can claim to know her through experience rather than knowledge? How many of us pick up the phone to call her regularly in a friendly way to chat about the state of the nation, to seek her views, to understand her ways? And why would we want to understand her ways? Why did Moses want to know more of the ways of God? He was the first person to read God's law. He had an incredibly intimate knowledge of God, and yet he prays, show me your ways. Moses wanted to know more of God, to move from knowledge of God to experience of God. He wanted to continue to find favour with God, to find favour with God. So what is favour? The Oxford Dictionary describes favour as liking, goodwill, approval. For us, the word favour generally implies preferential treatment, as in the word favourite. And Moses definitely had the favour of God in these terms. But in the New Testament, the Greek word for favour is charis, usually translated as grace. Grace and favour is essentially a gift. If we gain favour with people, or as we might say, get in their good graces, we have special access to them and we receive something from them. The same thing is true about gaining favour from God, although the charis we receive from God 
is obviously different from the favor we receive from men. This is what Moses wanted, more of God's grace. So this is what he prayed. He had seen God lead people through the desert. He had seen daily provision of food and water. He knew that they were still alive because of God, that they were protected by God. Moses wanted to know the ways of God so that he could lead the people the way God would lead them. He wanted to know the ways of God so he could model the compassion, wisdom and love of God before the people. But more than that, he knew God as a friend and he wanted to rest in that friendship. Isn't this why we spend time with God through the Bible and through prayer, to become more like Jesus, to know more of his grace, to understand his heart so that we respond to the people in our lives as Jesus would have done. We want to experience God rather than just to know about him, to move from living under the law to living under grace. Moses had made a commitment to follow God into the desert and do, act, think, behave as God would. If we're going to enjoy intimacy with God, we will have to become something of what Christ is. What I mean is we can't wait until we understand everything before we seek intimacy. We can only discover intimacy as we give ourselves to the ways of the Lord. The more we become like Christ, the more intimacy we will have with God. Moses asks for favour, and this is how God replies. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God's favour, or his grace, is wrapped up in his presence. And this is what we experience when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, God's presence. Christ dwells in us through his Holy Spirit when we become Christians. And I love Moses' reply. It's as if he says, well, so I should hope so. He knows that without God's presence, no one will know that they are God's people. They need God's presence to distinguish them from other people just as we need God's Holy Spirit to distinguish us as Christians. For Moses, living with the presence of God was more important than living in the promised land without the presence of God. Moses' next request was, show me your glory. Quite remarkable request. We're led to assume that God and Moses have been casually chatting as friends about whether God will grant his favour and presence to Moses, and then Moses asked to see God's glory. Doesn't he remember the fear and the trembling of the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai? Doesn't he remember God's warnings to them not to get too close, otherwise they'll die? Moses was asking God to reveal his awesomeness, magisterial glory. Didn't he realise how dangerous that was? Perhaps he was willing to pay the price. Moses knew that God's glory had the power to kill people. He was close to God and God had promised his presence. One commentary I've read suggests that Moses wanted more than God's presence. He wanted God's essence to be God. But I'm not so sure. I think he just wanted more of God. I think he felt safe with God. God had promised, I will give you rest. But I don't think he wanted to be God. And I don't think he wanted to control God. He just wanted to experience more of God. And in his infinite wisdom and compassion, God protects Moses from the fullness of his glory. The denial of Moses' request to see the face of God is for his own good, so he won't die. Only God knows how to handle the power within his grasp. Only God can harness the glory of his presence in a way that won't annihilate us. This account of Moses seeking to see the glory of God is a reminder that we're not equal with God. We're partners, but unequal partners. Philip Yancey comments in his book, Prayer, Does It Make Any Difference? 
that learning to dialogue with God will never end because we are an equal partners, God and I. Admitting that, bowing before it, helps open my ears. Pursuing God despite the differences helps open my mouth and then my heart. So what are we to learn from all of this? God wants to know us by name. He wants an intimate relationship with each of us. He wants us to dialogue with him. He's willing to invest the time. Are we? If we are willing to invest the time, what gets in the way? What is it that stops us from spending time with God to dialogue with him? The first thing that springs to mind is fear. I mean, he's the creator of the universe. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And we've discovered that he's a very passionate God and, frankly, really scary. When Moses was on Mount Sinai and God manifested his presence, the Israelites were terrified. They feared for their lives. It says in Exodus 20:18, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They pleaded with Moses not to have to speak to God for fear of death. Moses told them, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. In almost every biblical account of an encounter with God, the human falls to his knees and hides his face in fear. Moses himself was afraid and hid his face the first time he encountered God at the burning bush. God's response is, do not fear, just as Moses says to the Israelites. Now, I can remember being afraid of God. Not long after I became a Christian, I had a real sense of the power and greatness of God. To me, he was Lord. I couldn't call him Father. He was too awesome, too powerful, too remote. I'd come to the point of believing he existed, of understanding that Jesus had died on the cross for my sins and that he rose again and gave us the Holy Spirit. But I couldn't really conceive of having a relationship with him. The distance between us in terms of me, a mere mortal, and him, the God of the universe, was too great. So how did I overcome this? Ironically, through time spent with God, by reading the Bible, reading Christian books, um, having fellowship with other Christians, and through getting to know more of God. We have to spend time with God to get to know him and to experience him. It's called stepping out in faith, and God always meets us halfway. So we might fear that God is too powerful or remote, or we might fear that we are not good enough. Again, as a new Christian, my awareness of lack of perfection was really acute. Moses had the answer. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will keep you from sinning in Exodus 20.20. This fear of God protects us. It helps us to think about what we're doing. It helps us to stop from sinning. But it isn't God's motivation that we should stop sinning out of fear. And I'm reminded of John 14:18 that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And when I'm afraid, I think of Romans 8:15, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Sometimes the fear of being intimate with God might be because we have some hidden sin we don't want him to seek out or perhaps we don't want him to show us an error in our lives that is sinful. Are we wary of letting God too close because we're not convinced he has forgiven us or that he will forgive us? And please let me assure you that God forgives you. This is what he says about himself in Exodus 34 verse 6 when he was showing his glory to Moses. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, 
The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining loves to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. God is in the business of forgiveness and he forgives us again and again and again. I've discovered as I've grown as a Christian that the reason I don't want to sin is not because I fear God, but because I don't want to hurt him because I love him. And when I do sin, if I ask for forgiveness, he graciously forgives. The second thing that gets in the way of us developing intimacy with God is distraction. There were lots of distractions for Moses. People complaining about food and water, people grumbling about everything. Moses was a busy man, and there are lots of distractions for us. I find this is something that really gets in the way of my time spent with God. Even when I set aside time to spend spend time with God, the distractions come with me. Moses didn't let this get in the way. He also knew how to place his trust in God. He stayed true and loyal and faithful to God throughout the entire 40-year journey in the desert, even though the Israelites were constantly moaning and complaining about their lot. Not enough food, not enough water, not enough this, not enough that. They looked back to Egypt with rose-tinted spectacles and remembered how good their lives had been materially. Moses was surrounded by negativity and pessimism, and yet he remained true to God. He allowed God's view to override that of the complaining. As we're reminded in Philippians 4.8, whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is praiseworthy, think about such things. Moses was able to stay focused on God and to overcome these distractions as he went to the tent of meeting. The other big distraction in building intimacy with God is because of the idols in our lives. The Israelites wanted to worship something, and when Moses was gone so long, they made themselves a golden calf, an idol. The consequences were dire. 3,000 of them lost their lives, and it was only because God interceded, Moses interceded with God that he didn't abandon them altogether. God was absolutely clear about how much he detests idols. Idols in the Bible are generally depicted as objects that are worshipped as deities. But as Tim Keller points out, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you only what God can give. He goes on to say, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. God wants to be the centre of our lives, and he sent his son to die on the cross and rise again, so that we could have an intimate relationship with him. In Jonah 2.8 it says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Our worship of idols is worthless, and it costs us the grace that God wants to give us. We need to overcome distractions in our lives, including idols. And how did Moses overcome these? He went to the tent of meeting. Now, as I said earlier, God had given very specific and detailed instructions about um, constructing the tabernacle. But at the time I've been talking about, it hadn't actually been built. Remember that Moses had come down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and all the instructions from God, 
only to find that the Israelites were worshipping a golden calf. It wasn't until after God, Moses had met with God in a tent of meeting and received God's promise that he would go with them that God gave Moses a second set of tablets and the tabernacle was finally built. Tabernacle is another word for tent, so it could be assumed that the tent of meeting was like a proxy tabernacle. God's presence would come down like a cloud when Moses went to the tent of meeting and the Israelites all stood and worshipped because they recognised the presence of God. If you read the Bible, you'll realise that the tabernacle was the forerunner of the whole system of temple worship that so exemplified the Israelites throughout their history and especially in Jesus' time, a few thousand years later, when in John 2.19 he promised to tear down the temple in three days. Jesus was saying that the physical temple was not God. The temple Jesus spoke of was his body. He was saying God's presence would not reside in a place where ritualistic worship had got in the way of heartfelt worship. When he died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, signifying tearing down of the barrier between God and humans. Because of Jesus, we can approach God as if face to face, to meet with him and to get to know him and share ourselves with him. This is what Moses was doing in the tent of meeting. He wasn't bound by the rituals of the tabernacle when he wanted to meet with God, and neither are we. But Moses did physically go to meet with God, and we need physically to go to meet with God, to find our own place of meeting where we can spend heartfelt time with God and become intimate. Now, I realise I've covered a lot in this talk, and there's always so much to say, but my message is this. If we don't make time to pray and read the scriptures, we'll greatly reduce the likelihood that God will speak to us directly. When we make time to meet with God through prayer and reading the Bible, with an open heart, we seem to provide an opportunity to encounter the living God, whether that's through a stronger sense of his presence, the words of the scripture seemingly meant for us and our situation, or the specific voice of God. And above all, we need to spend time with him to learn more of him and to open our hearts to him. When I was speaking to my husband about my talk and was a bit concerned about how long it was, he asked me how long it should be. And I said, well, anything from between 20 minutes and 40 minutes. And he looked at me in horror at the thought of having to sit through a 40-minute sermon and said, what do you want them to do? Pitch their tent so they can fall asleep? And I said, yes, that's exactly what I want them to do, to pitch your tents, not to fall asleep. And I hope I haven't put you to sleep. I want you to pitch your tent so you can meet with God and ask him to teach you his ways.